I'd invite you just to bow your heads for prayer before we dive into this study. Father God, we don't know the half of it, but what we do know impresses us to be here this morning to worship you. Lord, we are in a mess. This world is in a mess. And there is only one solution, and that is you. And my prayer is as we open the book of Ezekiel, our hearts would be redrawn and reattracted to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's an absolute privilege to continue our series on a blazing grace. Last week, Pastor David explored for us themes from Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He reminded us that Jesus, through Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, was pleading with an intransigent people to turn around, to alter their trajectory, to change their course, to come back to God in repentance. Because on the horizon, you could already see the dust from Babylonian footprints headed towards Jerusalem. We began our series on a blazing grace with a God who made a perfect world, who brought into it perfect human beings. Everything indeed was good. But along the way, an adversary, somebody came in to ruin the plan and they tempted our first fathers to listen to the original lie that they could be their own authority, their own God, that they could live independently from a God who loved and cared and wanted to invest himself in his creation. And hijacked, we immediately are given the promise of Messiah, the promise of Redeemer. God comes to Abraham and in covenant says, I want to be your God, I want you to be my people, I want to give you land, I want to give you blessings. Through you I want to bless all nations of the world. I want to see this place restored to its original Edenic perfection and I want my character to be imprinted on the lives of my creation. For a while we see struggle, we see the, the people of God rescued in the time of the Exodus, nurtured by God in the wilderness. Then we get to probably the high point in the story of the Old Testament in the time of David and Solomon, where kings and queens from around the globe were coming to hear the wisdom and to see the blessings that had been poured out upon the nation of God's covenant-keeping people. But as we have already heard this morning, there was that inevitable slide where somehow there was a, a desire in the hearts and, and of, of men and women to imbibe a little bit of the culture around them, to participate a little bit um, in the idol worship of the nations that surround them, to, to, to be one of the club. And the apostasy and the compromise that was introduced brought the nation of Israel into an inevitable slide and the spiral got worse and worse and worse and worse. And so recently, um, we've heard from Jared on Isaiah, the wonderful presentation, thank you, Jared, and, and David on Jeremiah, as we're about to enter the, the lowest point of the history of the nation of Israel, where instead of being the leaders and, and the people from whom the other nations would come and look up to, their temple was lying in ruin and they were carried captive into a foreign land. It is in this context that Ezekiel appears. Ezekiel, whose name in Hebrew means God strengthens. Ezekiel was a priest, the son of a priest, but he was a priest without a priesthood. He was taken captive in the second round of, of, of um, I guess, Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of the nation of Judah, and he was there 
by a canal in the land of Babylon, ministering to captives who had been taken from their place. The sanctuary was headed towards desolation. The nation of Israel was facing political oblivion. In a sense, the exodus had been reversed, and a nation brought from captivity now was going back into captivity. A nation that was on an upward trajectory was now nearing the bottom of its trajectory. Many of us can personally relate, I guess, to the story of the nation of Israel. As youth, we are filled with dreams and visions. We, we, we feel God's call on us to be all that we can be. But somewhere along life, that life can become messy. Relationships can break down. Financial constraints can come upon us. And all of a sudden, as we look upon the dream, we recognize that it's nothing like we envisaged. And if you're feeling like that way this morning, Ezekiel is the book that is for you. Ezekiel is the book that reminds us that when we feel weak, God is still strong. Sometimes we ask, if God is strong, then why is my life not a series of unmitigated victories? Why am I stuck in this mess? Why is it that when I look in the mirror, I don't see the picture that I think I should see? And in today's existentialism, we tend to want to project our present reality to be the norm for eternal realities. And we think, if I right now am feeling alone and isolated and lost, then maybe God has gone missing in action. And it is to this kind of audience that Ezekiel is called to minister, to captives in Babylon, God asks Ezekiel, go and tell them that in your moment of weakness... I am still strong. The prevailing attitude of the nations around the nation of Judah was that if my army beats your army, then my God beats your God. And so Israel faces the great shame that the name of Jehovah was being blasphemed by nations which said to the nation of Judah, if your God is so great, then how come we beat you? How come we took you down? And Ezekiel is asked to minister to this generation to remind them that God is strong. You see, saints, belief in God when circumstances tell us not to believe, this is the essence of faith. Can someone say amen? Amen. To believe when it looks to all appearances that God has left us, that God's plan has been derailed. This is the nature of faith. Too many Christians find that when everything is Rainbows and butterflies, it's easy to praise God. But when they're in financial constraints, when they're in sickness, when they're in relationship troubles, they all start to ask, where has God gone? And the message of Ezekiel is that even in the darkest points of Israel's history, God was faithful to covenant. God had not lost his place in the script. God was on track. This is the essence of faith. Pastor David brought to our attention last week those beautiful texts, those, those, that beautiful pathos in Jeremiah the weeping prophet who cried out to a generation over, the, over successive kings as the exile became more and more impending. Oh, turn back, he cried. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil ways and reform your evil deeds. Jeremiah was a prophet calling for reformation. I want you to notice the response of the nation of Judah to Jeremiah's pleas to return. What did they say? It is what? Hopeless. 
Jeremiah calls for them to return, and the natural human response is to say, it is hopeless, Jeremiah 18, 11, and 12. It is pointless. There is no point repenting. Why? Because they had made up their minds that the momentum that they had towards an untimely end was such that no power on earth could reverse their trajectory. And saints, how many times we feel like that. We feel we've passed the point of no return. The consistent message of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, of Daniel was to explode a narrow horizon, to explode a small view of the world and look beyond present circumstances to recognise that we are but a chapter in a series of books that tells a story that began far, far um, in the past and will last far, far into the future. And we must never fall into the trap of projecting our present reality to being normative. We must always have the eye of faith and recognise that God was on track in the discipline that he brought to the nation of Israel. It was in accordance with the covenant promise that if they strayed, he would put them in a naughty corner for a while so they could think about what they had done and turn around and come back to him. But the nation said, it is hopeless. Instead, we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our evil heart. Ezekiel's generation looked at the promises of the covenant, the promises to be the head and not the tail, the promise to have land, the promise to have a sanctuary where God would dwell, and to all intents and purposes, every promise had been smashed and every hope had been crushed. But I want to tell you this morning, saints, our God loves us enough not only to love us in the good times, but to love us with discipline. Can you say amen? to catch our attention, to do what is necessary, to warn us that we need to change direction, that we need to be serious about our relationship with him because a serious belief in God has serious consequences. It's called eternal life and it's a fantastic privilege that awaits all that will trust in him. You know, love is expensive. Love is inconvenient. Would you agree? Those of you in this church who are passionate about ministry, they know that it's not a convenient thing to be engaged in ministry. It's not a cheap thing to be engaged in ministry. Jesus loved prodigally. He wasted his love, so to speak. He was generous with his blood. There was no limit on what he would do in order to tell people in this place that he cares for them. And Ezekiel comes along in this context when every hope has been shattered and every dream has been lost. It says, I want to assure you that God is still strong. God is still strong. The book of Ezekiel can be loosely divided into three sections. The first section, a very short section, the introduction in which Ezekiel sees a vision of God. It's an amazing and a fantastic vision of God. It reminds Ezekiel that God is still who he claims to be. Then we have a large portion of the book devoted to judgment. First of all, judgment on God's covenant people. But extending beyond the boundaries of Israel, God also judges all those nations whose histories have been intertwined with Israel. You know, the original covenant given to Abraham was never meant to be parochial and narrowly focused. It was meant to be a way in which God could bless all nations of the earth. And when we think that God is only interested in me and my space, we lose a sense for the ablazing grace that is demonstrated to us in the Old Testament. God is engaged with the other nations. And Ezekiel spends a lot of its time calling the other nations to account 
and asking them to consider their ways. And then the last section of the book of Ezekiel spends a long time describing the consequences of revival and reformation, the building of a new temple, the re-establishment of the political power of Israel and Judah as a nation. Ezekiel inspires them to dream the dream, to not allow their immediate circumstance to dominate their spiritual horizon, but to look beyond what is now to what will be. Isn't that the eyes of faith? Is that easy? Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's difficult. But for those of us who have learned to put our trust in God, we have found that he is a faithful covenant-keeping God. The temple would be restored. The remnant would be redeemed. And a redeemed people would worship God again in a restored temple. I want to briefly slow down and just look at a few key points in the book of Ezekiel. And for me, the thing that is so significant about the book of Ezekiel is that Ezekiel begins with a fresh picture of God. Ezekiel sees a vision in chapter 1 of Ezekiel in which he sees wheels within wheels. He hears lightning. He he hears thunder. He sees rainbows. He, He looks at this majestic, awesome being. This God that he sees in vision is not a lethargic God. It's not an emotionless God, but a God and a throne that is mobile, energetic, coordinated, intentional, and directional. Ezekiel's book begins with a picture of God that describes him as being awesome, majestic, powerful, intelligent, and active. Everything the generation of Ezekiel's day said God wasn't. Where is God, they ask? Why are we in this mess? How come we've been taken away into captivity? Is God tired? Is he asleep? Is he indifferent? Does he not care? And Ezekiel gets a fresh picture of God. No, God is big. God is powerful. God is majestic. God is awesome. God is coordinated. There's wheels within wheels. There's there's complexity to the nature of God. It's not a simple picture of God. It's a very, very inspiring picture that God is bigger and greater and more powerful and that's the picture we need when we're in deep soup. Can you say amen? I would like to make a proposition to the church at Kingscliff and to the wider listening audience that no revival and reformation can ever truly take place until we catch a clear vision of God. It is the fresh picture of God that transforms us. True faith is a recognition that God is who God says he is and not who we have made him to be. It is said loosely in, in I guess, the um, internet version of theology that in the beginning God made in his man his image and in these last days we've re- returned the favour. We have taken God and we have recreated him in the, to be the kind of Santa Claus that we want him to be, the, the, the nice, friendly God that dishes out presents whether we've been good or bad. But to truly understand God, we almost need to disentangle ourselves from preconceived opinions and allow God to show us what he is really like. It is so easy for us, as I've said, to project our our present circumstances, those things that are proximate, those things that are immediate to our story, and say, this must define for us what God is like. And God is saying to Ezekiel, don't look at your present mess. Look higher and see me for who I am. This is key to a message of hope for the remnant scattered amongst the Babylonian Empire. 
You know, Satan has always attempted to obscure our concept of God. From our first parents who sinned in the Garden of Eden, it has been the Satan's attempt to usurp what God is really like and replace that with a fictitious image that will lead us into sin. Has God said was his first accusation towards Adam and Eve. Do you really understand what God is like? I want to tell you God is different from what you think he is. From the very first time in Eden where Satan came to tempt our parents, he has suggested that God is restrictive, that God is arbitrary, that God is dispassionate and doesn't care for his creation. And God in Jesus has attempted to shatter that myth and how exciting it will be when we can finally move past exile into Messiah and get an idea of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Could he do any more than he has done? Could he give any more than he has done? Could he love any more than he has loved? No, Jesus shows us that God would not spare his own son but freely give him up for us all and with him would freely give us all things. God really loves and cares for us. If we would truly believe this, then we would find that obedience and compliance with his will would become a joy and the love of Christ would be a compelling power in our lives to bring about holiness. You know, David, I was moved as I listened to him just give us a little insight into what happened in his life when someone gave him the book Great Controversy and how it changed his worldview and how it made such an impact in his own spiritual walk with Christ. For me, the book that did that is the book Desire of Ages. Have any of you heard of it? It's a beautiful book by a lady called Ellen White. And if you've never read it, you can read it online, just www.ellenwhite.org. Um, you, can, you can read her, her uh, writings online. Or if you really want one, email me and I promise you I'll buy one and send it to you. It's a fantastic book. And she describes the effect that Jesus' words had on the generation of people that listened to him. Notice what she says here on page 620. The gems of truth that fell from Christ's lips on that eventful day were treasured in many hearts. For them, new thoughts started into life. New aspirations were awakened. And a new history began. Do you want a new history? You want your story to change trajectory? Then foundational and key is to have new thoughts about God. If we think right, we will act right. So many times we make the mistake when we find somebody coming to Christ or wanting to show an interest in becoming a Christian that we try and reform behaviours. But reforming behaviours and, and dealing with externals is going to be completely ineffective in the long run. We need to reorient people's thinking about God. Who is God? What is he like? What is his attitude towards me? How committed is he to this relationship? Can I trust him? And if saints, we can but make the picture of Christ clear in our community, we will fill our pews and we will have a horde of disciples ready to meet Jesus when he comes. If you want a new story, then you need a new thought about God. And when Ezekiel had seen the glory of God, what could he do? He could do nothing other than every human being who has ever had an encounter with God can do, and that is to fall down on his knees, to fall down in worship, 
There is no higher place in the kingdom of God than to be on your knees in true recognition of the awesome majesty of the King of Kings. You know, humility is not about self-deprecation. It is not about a celebration of our own incompetencies or our own lethargy. True humility does not put humans down but lifts God up. It is a recognition that man at his best is insignificant in comparison with the holiness and righteousness and magnificence of God. When Ezekiel falls down, God does something unique. He picks him up. He lifts him up and he gives him a commission. Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are a stubborn and obstinate people. Do we like the word obstinate? It's a cool word. We don't use it very much. But the um, NASB here translates it from a very interesting Hebrew word. You know, there are many gems in Scripture, aren't they? Some lie on the surface, but some you've got to dig for. And I just want to pause for a moment. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but armed with commentaries and all the powers of the internet, it's very easy for a simple um, Bible student who knows nothing about original languages to still find some gems. And I just want to share this one to you. The word translated obstinate comes from the Hebrew word, and for those Hebrew scholars out there, forgive me because I'm not very good at my guttural H, but essentially it comes from three Hebrew characters, and I'm going to loosely say in Australian, kazak. Is that okay? It's not pure, but kazak will do. And kazak means hard, stubborn, obstinate, but it also means strong. Strong. That's why I was so excited about the children's story. It was like the truth in children speak, so you can sleep through the sermon. Chazak. I am sending you to a stubborn and a chazak children. They're hard. They're obstinate. They're inflexible. They're unbending. And Ezekiel's name comes from exactly the same root. Chazak, joined with El, which is the Hebrew word for God. Chazak El, Ezekiel. Jared, a couple of weeks ago, preached to you on Isaiah and he spent a deal of time talking about Hezekiah. comes from the same word. Chazak and Yah for Jehovah. Hezekiah. Jehovah is my strength. And here, right at the beginning, God comes to Ezekiel and says, your name means God is your strength. I am sending you to a hard people but I've made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their, forehead, as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or do not be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. You know, in physics we talk about the consequences of the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. It's a, it's a conundrum that amuses physicists to no end. What happens when a force that's irresistible means an object that's immovable? What are gonna, what's going to happen to the conservation of momentum and what's going to happen to all of the energy um, that we like to study? And here in Ezekiel's day, we have the spiritual equivalence. What happens when a stubborn prophet meets a stubborn people? A hard prophet meets a hard people. You know, in the modern spiritual world, there is a tendency to reduce the idea of spiritual challenge to a level that can be met by our own fragility. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But this may be an unpopular thing to say, 
But in the spirit of Ezekiel, I want to tell you that the spiritual challenge that you are embarking on in order to belong to the kingdom of heaven is not for the tame and the lifeless. There is no harder thing you will ever do than to surrender to someone else's authority in your life. To give up your independence and to put yourself in the position of the vulnerable where you say, God, save me or else. It is difficult to take on the prevailing norms and paradigms of our modern culture, which has marginalised and isolated and in many cases left God out of the picture completely. God did not promise us that we would be able to float all the way to the kingdom. But what he does promise is that however hard the challenge is, that where sin abounds, grace will much more abound, that we will be empowered and strengthened, not just to win a victory, but to win the victory um, absolutely and with triumph. Isn't it an exciting picture that God gives us? God will not spare us from challenge or trial, but God will empower us to endure it. We are in a serious war. And we have a serious God who can seriously resource us so that we can rise to meet the challenge. And once strengthened by God, Ezekiel begins to act. And we find him in the first portion of the, the judgment section of Ezekiel, moving through the land. And in, in one section, it's an, it's an awesome section, God takes him in vision back to Jerusalem and he says, Son of man, do you see what they are doing what the house of Israel are committing, the abominations that I would go far from my sanctuary, you will see even worse than this. Ezekiel is taken in vision and he sees women weeping for Tammuz, a foreign god involved in fertility and pagan worship of the nations around them. You will see worse than this, God says. Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Bad behavior will always follow bad presuppositions. When we believe that God has lost interest in us, it is inevitable that we will lose interest in him. And the elders, the very people who should have been custodians and protectors of the truth given to the nation of Israel, ended up within the precinct of the sanctuary, forming carved images and pagan images and, and idols of jealousy that provoked God to disappointment. You will see greater abominations than these. So he brought him to the inner court of the Lord's house, the very inner precincts of the sanctuary, the place where God said, my name will dwell there. And as Ezekiel looks at what the elders of the house of Israel are doing within the innermost part of the sanctuary, he doesn't see things protecting righteousness and holiness. Instead, he sees 25 men prostrated with their backs to the temple and their faces towards the east. Worshipping, as it were, the sun. Can you imagine it? Those who have been charged to protect the covenant that was lying in the Ark of the Covenant within the sanctuary. Those who were there to protect the truths delivered to Israel. Those that were there to teach and to show the world what God was like. Had their backs to all that was important and their faces towards the sun. God said to Ezekiel, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. 
and the land is filled with blood and the city is full of perversion. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see us. Can you see again? Bad presuppositions will inevitably lead to bad behaviour. If you think that God is not interested in you, if you think that God is absent from your time and space, if you think that God is a distant God, someone else's God, not your God, it is inevitable that you will be led into turning your back on all that is right and instead worshipping all that is wrong. And as we think of how far the nation of Judah had fallen, how, how that downward spiral of rebellion against God had taken them. We get here to, I think, what is the lowest point in the whole of the Old Testament. The very place that God had said, my name will be there, that is the place where you will worship. They had turned their backs on the sanctuary to worship the sun. And here is the gospel in Ezekiel. Our series has been titled A Blazing Grace. And you know, from the bottom of my heart, I I say this with all due respect to the New Testament. I never understood grace reading Paul. I never understood grace reading Ephesians. I never understood grace reading Philippians or Romans. I never understood grace reading Hebrews. It was not until I read Chronicles and Ezekiel and Micah and Nahum, and Habakkuk, and Malachi, that I really understood grace. 490 years of generational rebellion had brought the nation to a point where they said openly, our hope is lost. We are like dead bones. And God takes Ezekiel out into the desert and he shows them a vision. And he says, I want you to have a look here. And on the surface of the valley, there are bones and they are very dry. Ezekiel was asked a question, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel does the only bright thing when God asks you a question, and that is to say, God, you know the answer better than I. Oh Lord God, you know. This is the ultimate question. Can God save us when we are at our lowest? I'm not talking about redemption from an ATAR of 95 or an OP of 2. I'm not talking about the vegan who accidentally has some chicken in a spring roll branded as vegetarian. I'm talking about redemption from that place in your life where instead of being custodians and protectors and lovers of all that is true, you have done a complete reversal and your face is towards the rising sun. Can God save you then? Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say... Our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Have you felt like that? I'm going to cry because I have. There have been moments in my life where I look in the mirror and I say, how can God ever redeem Glenn Hughes? How can someone who's a fifth generation Adventist who has nut meat and marmite coursing through his veins, whose great-great-grandmother had the first conference office in Brisbane, who housed A.G. Daniels and Alan White. How is somebody who has got generations of people visiting Avondale College and invested with righteousness and, 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 and a custodian of truth, how can that person who has turned his back in his own little rebellion on God ever hope to be saved? Have you felt like it? 
A blazing grace, how sweet the sound. Prophesy, say to them, this is God's truth. I want to open your graves. I want to cause you to come out of your dead places. I want you to recognize that you are my people. I want to restore to you all of the covenant promises. I want to give you back your land. I want you again to be everything that I hoped you could be. Can you say amen? This is grace. This is grace. There is no such thing as dead bones when you have the creator of the universe who can call light from darkness, order from chaos, and death, sorry, life from death in your proximate space. You know, there's a little text in the book of Micah that I regard as the theme text of the whole Old Testament, and I hope Pastor David will forgive me for jumping out of Ezekiel for one moment to share it with you. Micah, a prophet who was prophesying as a contemporary of Isaiah, had this to say, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. The consistent message of Ezekiel, a hard prophet with a hard message for a hard people, was turn, turn, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want you to turn from your ways and live. You know, the hardest thing to do is to convince people who think they're lost that they can be saved. That is the hardest thing to do. We are so good in our existential defense of thinking that my present experience is the truth. And to help somebody vision a new truth for themselves, a new normal, a new space and place where they can exist with God's blessing and God's favour in their life. This is something that requires a supernatural born-again experience. This is beyond the scope of human ability. This is why we need God. Isaiah pled with his generation, come let us reason together. Jeremiah pled with his, resurre- with his generation, turn from your iniquities, only acknowledge your iniquities, come back to me, I'm married to you, I want you to be back in a relationship with me. And Ezekiel pleads, turn, 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 why will you die? The judgment of Ezekiel is not executive, it is investigative, it brings people to account, it causes them to be alarmed at their present state, but it promises them hope. The great tragedy for Ezekiel's generation is that the call went unheeded. God said to Ezekiel, as for you, they're going to come and they're going to sit before you as if they were my people and they're going to hear your words and they're going to make statements like, wow, they, he preaches so well. It's like somebody playing on an instrument skillfully and singing us a sensual love song. But they will hear your words but they won't do it. They will not put it into practice. You know, I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases John 8. Jesus turned to those who claimed to believe in him and he said, if you stick with this, if you live out what I tell you, then you will be my disciples for sure. Then you will experience for yourselves the truth and the truth will free you. Adventists and people who sit in church are at great risk 
of becoming so desensitized to the call of God on their life, of hearing the words and not putting them into practice, that they can come to a point where, like Ezekiel's generation, they can be in the very temple of God, but their face can be headed in the wrong direction. Their worldview can be dominated by the pagan culture around them, and they can be unaware of the treasures that lie within finger reach of their grasp. You know, we need to sum this up. Um, When I was talking to Jennifer, I promised her I'd preach for 43 minutes and I'm already way past the close of probation. But I want to wrap this up quickly. We begin with a picture of God in Ezekiel. We go through chapters of judgment and the ultimate aim of the book of Ezekiel is to describe for a generation what God visions for their future. A restored temple, restored worship, restored political authority, restored covenant promises. And the last words of the book finish like this. The Lord is there. The complaint of the people is that the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord does not see us. The Lord is not interested in us. And like Jeremiah who says, I know the plans I have for you, plans of peace to give you a future with hope. So Ezekiel said, the vision that God has for you is for all the promises of the covenant to be restored and for the Lord to be there. You know, it's amazing that Ezekiel is a book, one of the few books in the Old Testament that commentators say is never quoted in the New Testament. Did you know that? Those of us who have studied Revelation recognise that a great majority of Revelation is based on allusions to the script that lies in the book of Ezekiel. But as far as I'm aware, if I check the the commentaries and the scholars, there is no direct quotation from the book of Ezekiel in the New Testament. But I want to finish with this concept. God, judgment, worship. One of the key themes of the book of Revelation is that God is speaking to our generation, to this place, to this house, to you and to me, saying, fear God, And give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. The everlasting good news proclaimed to every nation, like Ezekiel, the clarion call goes out. Want you to have a picture of God, a big God, a powerful God. A God that can make something beautiful from something disordered and chaotic and dark. And what's the best way of honouring that God? It's to worship him. It's to surrender your life to him. It's to say to that God, God, when I'm weak, you are strong. The road that you're inviting me to walk down may not be the easiest. It may be hard, but it's the best and most obvious of all choices. Because connection and fellowship with God is worth more than all else beside. My prayer for this church as you continue your journey of a blazing grace is to recognise that however dry your bones are, God's solutions are always bigger than your problems. He is still strong when you are weak. Amen. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you and praise you that in the midst of the book of Ezekiel when all seems doom and gloom, you pop up with a vision that tells us again what you are truly like.
Lord, there is nobody in this room or within my um, impact on the internet that cannot be saved. You are a God who can bring life to dry bones. You can take us after the downward spiral of our trajectory has put us in the darkest of all places and redeem us. Lord, my prayer is that we would not be obstinate, that we would not be hard, but that you would give us hearts of flesh, that you would transform us into all that you know we can be, not for our glory, but for yours only is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.